Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. <laughs> and we're back. And today we are going to be talking about a very important topic. Yes. Something that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Who? Actually, that's not true. I think a lot of people like to talk about it. I don't think that white people like to talk about it. Uh, um, no. Maybe you're the exception. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I Probably was, not. I was pushed into talking about it. So, you know, yeah, today I'm good with it. So when we record, we're actually... Um, on Google Hangouts, so I can see Nora, and she doesn't look uncomfortable, but maybe she will eventually. But we're going to be talking about white supremacy today. Yes. Because this, my friends, is a very important conversation that we in this country need to have, and some of us in this country are having it, and uh, some of us are having it very well, and that I would um, like to pat myself on the back and my colleagues um, who were working in uh, black movements all over uh, the country. And some of you are having it very badly. <laughs> some of you are having a very terrible conversation about white supremacy. And so Nora and I are here to intervene. Yes. And have a little bit of um, some sobering discussion for y'all on this. I think it might be helpful to to kind of identify some of the flashpoints in the last couple of weeks that have really brought this discussion out, certainly uh, in some of the spaces where where I exist, um, you know, online, on Facebook and in the streets. And so maybe um, maybe we should start with the flashpoint from the last month, which was a speech that was made at a rally in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God! I said Toronto as if I haven't lived there like in my life. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that was weird. Yeah, there's a whole lot to tackle with white supremacy uh, with respect to that rally. Um, not least of which is that it was just uh, poorly covered by the media at all, which allows for what happened to have happened. So, for the first time ever, there is a coast-to-coast action against white supremacy and Islamophobia in this country. And it is the catalyst to that action is a massacre of Muslim people while they prayed by a white supremacist in Quebec City, poorly poorly covered by the media. And uh, a coalition of groups comes together to, uh, to, to have a demonstration um, some sort of response uh, to what has happened in Quebec City, and it happens across the country. And there are a number of really, really important demands that are made to the federal government. One of the people who was emceeing the event uh, gets up and is explaining what the Muslim ban is in the United States, and then talks about how it has culminated in the situation that's happened in Quebec City. She then references that Justin Trudeau has made a tweet and people start in the audience, start clapping. Um, This is a very popular rally. A lot of people who have come out who have maybe never thought about some of these issues in a very deep way before. And they're cheering at the mention of Justin Trudeau's tweet. And of course, I'm referencing the tweet that Justin Trudeau put out after uh, the Muslim ban was announced, saying that Canada was an open country and would open its doors and blah, blah, blah. Her response to people clapping was to say, hey, don't clap. Don't clap. Uh, Justin Trudeau has not um, made any policy changes. 
He skipped the debate, the emergency debate that happened uh, in the House of Parliament. He is supplying arms uh, to uh, to people in Yemen who are killing Muslims. Like he too, he is um, building pipelines uh, on indigenous land. He too is a white supremacist terrorist. And if you were at that rally, and I've spoken to many people who were at that rally, you don't really remember that statement because it wasn't a speech. It was one of the things that the MC said at a six-hour rally uh, where, you know, mostly what she was saying was all of us or none of us, um, uh, no ban on stolen land and so on. It, you don't really remember it because it wasn't a flashpoint. And many of the speakers actually referenced the white supremacy of the Canadian government. But she was the only black Muslim woman who was on the stage who said that. And... Because there was such poor media coverage of the entire event, that allowed um, shitbox, super conservative, fascist, alt-right, but I don't like to use that term really, white supremacist media, to have a clip of her uh, and tweet it at as many stations as they could, saying, at this Black Lives Matter rally, this woman calls Justin Trudeau a white supremacist terrorist, and then that becomes the news. There's a whole host of, of, of things like to tackle from that, not least of which is, for fuck's sake, media, you need to cover <laughs> all of this shit or you allow white supremacists to create the story. Which, which is exactly what happened. Which is exactly what happened. But also, the way that white supremacy works is that it, is, it, it gets to distract from the really important issues that were the demands that were made None of the nobody in government was ever asked about those demands that would have seriously helped to curb some of the white supremacist policy that's in place that doesn't allow people to get into this country, that allows people to be separated from their families and so on. That is all a part of the project, too. So if you if you were talking, if you're listening to this and you were talking about that rally, talking about what that terrible conservative news media created the story to be and not talking about the actual policies that are white supremacist and that do hurt racialized people that do hurt Muslim and black folks, then you too have been had by white supremacy. Part of the way that white supremacy is maintained, and I'm, I'm saying this to you, not because I'm because you need to hear it. I'm saying this to you because everyone else that's listening needs to hear this uh, who's white. Part of how white supremacy is maintained is uh, in a variety of ways. There's economic structures, there's political structures, there's laws. We, we literally have uh, like ethnic based laws in this country uh, that privilege white people or settler people over indigenous people. But uh, in, a, in a popular discourse, white supremacy is maintained by like demonizing and making activists who are not white look nuts. And that is what happened here is, is they were trying to make this black Muslim woman who has been under constant attack, look completely out to lunch. And as if she has no concept of what actual white supremacy is, which is skinheads wearing, uh, you know, shit kicking boots, uh, patrolling small towns or big towns or whatever. Right. That's the common understanding among white people of what white supremacy is. 
And so when 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 someone says that Justin Trudeau is a white supremacist, there the immediate thing is like, what are you like? That is impossible. The guy does not have a buzz cut that he he's never been on Stormfront. You know, it's it's the actual it's the extreme manifestation of white supremacy, which are. Uh, you know, skinhead groups or extreme extreme groups. What actually is the most pernicious form is the fact that the news media, for example, spends the entire time demonizing an individual who made a, an off-the-cuff remark in response to something in a context in a rally that is true. That is true. That is true. That doesn't actually have to contend with the reality behind these statements. And so for white people, and and, and I saw a lot of these discussions on Facebook, where we're literally just had to break it down. And and I I saw white people saying, oh, I'm so happy that this was broken down for me because I didn't understand, you know, not the job of Black Lives Matter to have to do, not the job of a rally organizer to have to give an educational lesson plan in that that context. But we're so quick to, we, white people, are so quick to say, oh, man, we are not that violent. We are not that kind of white supremacist. I'm opposed to white supremacy in, in, in that form. But all of the invisible stuff, the stuff that has been made invisible to us white people is actually white supremacy. And we have no public way to reckon with it because uh, idea makers or decision makers push the uh, grotesque face of white supremacy that no one supports publicly to hide the fact that actually it's an operation in every aspect of our political system and our political culture and our economy in every part of this country. And even if we move back a bit, because, you know, I was I did assist in, in um, organizing that rally, that, the one that we're talking about that happened in Toronto. We called it um, a National Day of Action Against Islamophobia and White Supremacy. And on the back end of all of the social media events that had been set up, Uh, people were, white people, were contacting us to say, why is it about white supremacy? Could you, like, I would support this if you you just took that out of the title because the issue is actually Islamophobia. Even though we knew we were responding to a, a, like, proud white supremacist who had gone into a house of worship to massacre people. People were not comfortable saying, let's be against white supremacy. And... We have to contend with this, people. Like you, we need to confront this stuff head on. It is not. It's not okay to just have the assumption that everybody around you is not a white supremacist. Because I've got news for you. Look around the world. Uh, look around your very community. This stuff. This changing society. This move to the right. This move to racist uh, fascism doesn't happen out of nowhere. There is a culture that's been allowed to breed because of the structures and systems that Nora just talked about, the policies that exist that allow people uh, to come together to foster these ideas um, and to to organize around white supremacy in a, in a, in a more heinous way uh, exists because of uh, the the less overt policies and structures that allow these ideas to spread. In hearing the uh, the story that you had white people saying, I don't understand why this is white supremacy, that tells me that um, we have failed as white activists on the left to popularize what white supremacy is. And I, I often told go... I that, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, no, and I, I, I like to think back to um, uh, when I was at Ryerson, uh, we had a task force on anti-racism on campus. And we were trying to respond, the task force was trying to respond to a bunch of incidences that had occurred um, uh, that were mostly systemic racism. I remember a, an article in the Globe and Mail uh, written, I believe it was by Marcus G, who basically was like, sorry, Ryerson's the most diverse campus in Canada. What the hell are you talking about? There's no racism there. And, you know, like, as a white person who has not contended directly with systemic racism, let's say on campus, like at some level, I had to just, you know, trust the experiences of people who are not white saying I've had these experiences. And I had to say to myself, I've never experienced that. But unless I'm going to first believe that you are a liar or that your experience doesn't matter, I have to believe you. But we have built into the system uh, this this allowance for it always to be people making something up or people lying because you can't quite touch it. And, you know, like we've been dealing like this with with within feminism forever. Right. Like what is the glass ceiling that that keeps stopping women from getting getting forward? It's invisible. We can't see it. There's a glass ceiling, blah, blah, blah. It's the, it's the same effect uh, with racism, but people are so quick to, to refuse to talk about it. So going back to this idea that, well, Islam, we're talking about Islamophobia. We're not talking about white supremacy. I have a very hard time imagining what the logical connection is in someone's mind to be in touch with a, a rally organizer and say, we're talking about Islamophobia. We're not talking about white supremacy. We are actually talking about white supremacy. <laughs> like, we are talking about white supremacy. Islamophobia is possible because of white supremacy. <laughs> I, obviously. Yeah. And I, I think at the beginning of your statement there, you raised a, an important point about how Oh, like mainstream uh, Canadian culture likes to think about race and racism in general, which is like, okay, diversity is as far as we're willing to go. Right. <laughs> like if there is the existence of non-white people, we're good. The existence of non-white people means we're good. But I'm, I'm going to like just be very clear that often when you're hearing about racism, you're going to have to hear it from non-white people which means that they exist and are experiencing it and you'll you'll hear more about what's fucked up when there are more of us around because we can tell you about it um and marcus key if it was you <laughs> come on man <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we'll, we'll issue a sorry, correction in I mean, the next no, podcast no. <laughs> <laughs> well and i'd wonder if his position would change actually because it was six years ago and there is an, a, a raised consciousness about these invisible structures invisible to white people structures but i i don't i don't know maybe it would be the same maybe it's the same thing so let's talk about confronting it when we see it so i know i mean you're in quebec city uh, there were, uh, on March 4th, rallies across the country recently by uh, some white supremacists uh, against this motion that's going forward, a non-binding motion, um, essentially a statement, uh, recognizing that Islamophobia exists and that um, uh, something needs to be done about it. Like, that's, <laughs> that is the toothiness of the statement. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you were you were around for the one that happened in Quebec. Tell me about that. Yeah, so there were rallies held in, in communities across Canada. And, you know, if you want to use it as a barometer for where people are at, in almost every community across the country, anti-racists or people confronting racists outnumbered the racists. 
it, by significant margins. The Toronto rally, the pictures looked like a, a, do- a couple dozen people being protected by cops while a thousand people were surrounding them being like, we think you're wrong, racists, right? Like the ratio was, was very, you know, heartwarming and good and people mobilized. In Quebec City, it was not that. In Quebec City, there was uh, probably 100 people, maybe give or take uh, an extra 30, who were marching with uh, a couple of different groups, Soldiers of Odin, um, uh, a soldier, Soldiers of Odin splinter group called Storm Alliance <laughs> or Storm Alliance. Uh, <laughs> Storm's not a French word. I don't know why they call themselves that. <laughs> um, and La Meurthe, uh, the Wolf Pack. Uh, and so they're marching through the streets of Quebec City. And... Because there's a bunch of reasons. There's there's a fatigue in the city, obviously, because there's been a lot of mobilizing against what happened. But there's also like, unfortunately, the the rhetoric that the conservatives have have perpetuated about M103 being a threat. You know, there I would say there's probably people in that rally who, in good faith, thought that their rights were under attack because that's the mentality, white supremacy, whatever. And then, of course, there was actual skinheads who also showed up at the rally. So anti-racist organizers here, there was only about 50 of us, maybe. Um, uh, they, they managed to take the, the front of the rally. So they, they positioned themselves at the front of the rally with, with ra- banners that said, you know, refugee, refugees welcome and, um, and, and, you know, anti-racist slogans. And so from the outside, it looked like an anti-racist rally because uh, they led the rally throughout all the streets. But there's this moment where, you know, we've been walking now in a big pack of uh, like this motley crew for, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. And then an actual skinhead group with a banner, like with an actual Nazi slogan, literally ran towards us uh, to try and confront us. And I had this moment of thinking in Game of Thrones. I was like, oh, my God, like they're coming from the front and they're coming from the back and we are going to (laughs) die. You know, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I believe you. Just imagine you're at war and you got like enemies in the back and enemies in the front. Right. It's like that's a shit sandwich. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's it was it was this really unbelievable moment where, you know, there was only about nine of them. But I was like, oh, my God, these guys literally want to project a street war. Uh, and, the, and the police intervened or whatever. And uh, and so they were kind of pushed off. I think they took off their masks or whatever. Well, it was like minus 30, so we were all wearing masks. And then they joined the, the rally in the back. So that was a really amazing confrontation. Uh, what ha- worked in our favor was the police didn't force us from the front of the rally, which is what I believe happened in Montreal, where the two rallies were actually uh, forced to be separated. Uh, and there weren't many direct confrontations because there were police between us, even though if I was standing right in front of the police, I was probably five feet from the, the, the racist rally. I would say it was beautiful. It was a beautiful action considering how few we were, uh, considering how many they were. And the front page of the newspaper the day after was like, Bienvenue aux réfugiés. We had an anti-racism rally. And, <laughs> and 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 talking to many of the journalists who were there, like people were shocked that so many people came out in it, like a, a, against Muslims in a city where Muslims were just massacred. Um, and so our presence was great. Uh, it should have been stronger. But I can only speak for Quebec City because it felt like a very uh, specific situation to uh, to our kind of current context. But it was one of the strangest. And and nicest actions that I was able to participate in, you know, in a long time. So the, when you, when I hear you telling this story about how you know the anti-racists like went straight to the front to take up, uh, to take the space of the of the white supremacists, I start I start to think about 
all these debates that have been happening uh, recently in out in the world. Um, I've been seeing them a lot on social media, but what to do when you see people being outwardly white supremacists, maybe even violent, um, in words or gestures to people. Like if you see them on the subway, if you see them on the street, uh, do you punch a Nazi, Nora? Do you punch Nazis? Do you punch Nazis? <laughs> yeah, I'm unfortunately my record of punching versus getting punched in my life is not good so if we're gonna play the odds i'm probably gonna get punched by a nazi but the idea of actually confronting somebody i think that <laughs> i think that we've got uh, some serious problems if that is uh the level of discourse in this country like we're just gonna be overrun uh, by people. Look, if someone's being violent to someone in your vicinity, you have a duty to step in. Yeah. You have a duty to do something about it. Um, and I've been seeing far too many debates uh, descend into this like ableist rhetoric of, but maybe there's something wrong with them. Or maybe they have mental health issues, like this assumption uh, that if you are uh, blatantly, violently anti black, Islamophobic, racist, in a public space, then you must be having some serious mental health problems and you should not be confronted and the person who's being attacked should sit there and be attacked all on their lonesome. That's, uh, that's, that is both ableist, white supremacist, <laughs> anti-black, Islamophobic, racist, all the things, um, <laughs> and, and ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I think it, it speaks to how far, uh, how far the left has come from having to have proper debate. There's a, there's a, a lack, a serious lack of debate on the left in general, right? We've kind of lost the art of, de of debate. And part of losing the art of debate means losing uh, the ability to be face to face with someone who you like viciously disagree with. And like, these are all processes, right? So I'm not saying that you, that we should be debating Nazis, but if we can't even debate, you know, a liberal, let's say, because I know a lot of people really don't feel comfortable having, you know, face-to-face -face debates. That has an effect on how you confront or how you uh, do not confront uh, these kinds of instances. And so I see a parallel in the environmental movement where the environmental movement is this range of, uh, of social movement actors who do everything from tell you to buy uh, an electric car to have those shitty light bulbs that burn out really quickly, uh, but at least kind of look cool, right? All the way to um, activists, indigenous activists, who are chaining themselves to pipelines, who are doing direct action, who are blockading, who are, uh, who are standing up. Who are doing the to, tough work. Who are doing the tough work, right? Who are confronting. Right? Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's quite a lot of parallels to this, actually, in the broader left, in, 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 in anti-racist organizing, feminist, feminist organizing, organizing as well. Feminist organizing, for sure. So, okay, so do we support people chaining themselves to pipelines? You know, that's not a debate we're having. That's kind of like, yeah, obviously it's going to take that. The debate is more, do we chain ourselves to pipeline now? Do we have a pipeline to chain ourselves to? Uh, are you in a precarious position where you can get arrested or can't get arrested? Okay, let's have a proper discussion of these tactics. But we don't have the, the, the thing, the, a, a, a corollary to that in other parts of the left. And so instead, the entire discussion is, do you punch a Nazi if you see a Nazi? And it's like, what it kind of discussion is that? Like, first of all, I don't know. Do you punch anybody? Have you ever punched anybody <laughs> in your life? 
Uh, no. Okay, so maybe we should find another way to talk about confrontation that isn't just punching someone in the head. Do we do we talk about whether or not it was cool to punch a Nazi? It's like, yeah. God, like, sorry, confrontation is absolutely critical. Civil disobedience is confrontation. It's usually confrontation in the face of the state. When you have a violent... A uh, white supremacist, like let's say a Richard Spencer Nazi motherfucker who is in your face or is in your is in your friend's face or a stranger's face and you are witnessing violence and you are all like, I'm not sure if I should punch him. It's like, okay, in that second, make the decision to either confront him with words, uh, throw a mitt into the situation to de-escalate, right? Pull the emergency alarm on the subway because this is happening. Or I will punch him, right? Like, that's the, it's not confrontation, no confrontation. It's I have to confront this person. Exactly. And so what is the, what is the primal reaction? What's the immediate reaction? What am I most comfortable with doing? Um, because we would do that in the face of corporations. We would do, like, well, you know what? Some, Actually, maybe we would. Some of us would. <laughs> some of us would. Some of us are there, are at the point of confrontation, and know that a thousand think pieces on whether or not to punch a Nazi is not helping a single human being. We're already doing the confrontation work on the ground, taking up spaces, occupying spaces, uh, chaining ourselves to places, whatever it may be, uh, watching the rest of these so-called supporters have these ridiculous conf- conversations. And you're absolutely right. It's like the the real question that you are grappling with people out there having this discussion is, do you confront white supremacy? And so now that we've rephrased it for you, I hope it's easy to answer. You, in the last couple of years, have had, um, I think, um, the biggest successes through confrontation, direct confrontation. And um, you, I mean, through Black Lives Matter, although maybe also personally, maybe you've had some really good successes, too. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, and, it's, and it's I find it very interesting. You know, you, you, you occupied uh, police headquarters and it got action eventually. Right. It took a, a lot of other um, elements in, in your struggle to get action. Um, and then you confronted a parade. <laughs> and, pe- and people's mm-hmm. heads fell off. Right. It was like. Yeah, oh what? No, no, that's my parade. No, don't hurt my parade, right? It's like it's a, it's a parade. It's a, <laughs> it's a it's a fucking parade, guys. It's a bunch of people walking or not walking. Yeah. And and so actually in some ways the punch a Nazi conversation is a stand-in because because we know as humans that punching someone in the face is an action of like very high level aggression, let's say, right? Stopping a parade is a very low Mm -hmm. level of aggression i would say it is not aggression (laughs) at all (laughs) yeah but people but people could not handle that either right and so when we have an example of like the lowest level punching a nazi in the head which is stopping a parade to get a meeting (laughs) and people can't even deal with that then then the nazi head punching uh discussion it that turns into like the trolley discussion Right. Do I move the trolley to kill one person to save five people and then kill five people to save one? person? These are theoretical discussions that, yeah, like they're fun to have if you're in a bar or if you're if you're if your flight has been delayed for seven hours. Right. (laughs) If you're at the most boring places that you could possibly be, have these debates, people. (laughs) Yeah. But but if you are so wrapped up right now in that discussion I hate to tell you 
you are part of the problem. Right? Like that it's as simple as that. And I think that. that's uh the message for uh for this podcast. You are part of the problem. Thank you very much. <laughs> well and you know what and 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 i think also like if if you're listening and you're like oh man i i might be part of the problem like it's cool you know we're all part of the problem right like you know people like people buy too much stuff you're part of the problem people have cars you're part of the problem like people have i don't know people are shitty to one another you're part of like we're all part of the problem right so that's cool so the question (laughs) is how do we move ourselves from being part of the problem to 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 advancing a, a discourse that's actually a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced, and not just discourse but action, because that that will take us to a place where we can become not part of the problem, part of the problems. Well, what was it like in Toronto? Like, the, so you had the rally in Toronto. Um, I don't think you were there, but like, w- how did people kind of explain the 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 confrontation, non confrontation, whatever between the fascists and the everybody else? Well, okay, so the from I wasn't there, but from what I have been told, uh, police kept um, the anti-racist organizers, um, the anti-Islamophobia organizers, and demonstrators away from the fascists as much as possible, the white supremacists as much as possible. Uh, however, there were some uh, some points in times where uh, people were trying were trying to have confrontation or were being confronted. And there was also an attempted arrest of uh, some anti-racist organizers that the crowd kind of uh, rallied around the police officers who were doing that and and, uh, uh, managed to get them freed. From what I've heard, uh, there was a lot of debate within the people who attended these rallies as to whether or not they should engage in discussion, respond at all, uh, when the white supremacists were we're confronting them. I think that there is where we find some of the more serious consequences to the discussion that we're having. Um, what do you do? Do you, in a, in a space of a rally, where in Toronto there was probably at least triple, if not like, you know, um, a quadrupling of uh, people on the anti-racist side versus the uh, white supremacist side, that's a, that's a pretty safe place to confront someone because you got a lot of backup. It's a, it's a pretty safe place to, um, to know that you're going to be able to confront somebody and, and not be in physical danger. So if, if, that, and if in that place there are debates that are happening saying, no, do not talk to them, do not go up to them, do not uh, answer, just ignore them, let them rave on, let them get the media, let them get up to the media instead of confronting them and taking them away from the media. Because, you know, if you looked at the, at the, at the media coverage, it actually, you couldn't tell that the, that the Toronto rally was that much bigger if you were watching the media coverage live because the, the, the racist folks did a lot of interviews because they know what they're doing. And if you're at a Black Lives Matter rally, you know that we don't let that happen. Like you, you confront people and you make sure that they're not um, taking over uh, the message. Anyway, if you're having a debate at a rally like that about whether or not to ignore and let them run rampant and instead of confronting them when you have all of the support, well, I'm really, really nervous for the people who are uh, being confronted in public more and more now it's becoming more um prevalent that we're hearing of these Mm -hmm. stories of people becoming 
uh, being outwardly confronted in in public spaces by white supremacists. Uh, I'm really nervous for them because we need people to feel comfortable doing the confrontation. And if you're not, not even feel comfortable, we need people to just do the confrontation. And if you're not willing to do that in a place where you're going to be the most safe, I'm very, very nervous for those of us, people like myself, people who are Muslim and black, being targeted in public space. I, I think it's uh, worth giving a shout out to the folks in Regina who had uh, signs that they held up behind racists while they were being interviewed that like made fun of their position, kind of like the a lot of the feminists have been doing with anti-choice organizers, right? With the LOL, like yeah, yeah, yeah. weird hobby or whatever. Because that's the other side of it too, is is when we talk about whether or not we're, we're, we, we should be punching a Nazi or not, we forget that actually there's a lot of stuff that could have happened during that Spencer interview that would have been just as wicked. There could have been like a uh, young, uh, young woman going up to confront him and, and sounding super on point and excellent and telling him to fuck himself, that would have been wicked. There could have been uh, a group of people that held up a, a flag or something in front of his face. That would have been wicked, right? So there's, we, there's actually a, a lot of actions that you can take that aren't uh, maximum program. Not, not that maximum program isn't also wicked. No, no. Sorry. I, like, yeah, I guess I'm from the, like, the posesh, position of that, that video was wicked. Okay. So, okay. Um, but I don't know if you saw the, the video of the, um, of, of the guy in, I think it was like North Carolina, but I totally could be wrong. But the guy Who jumped got the flag? Yes. He jumped like Superman and took down that Confederate flag. My brother. Seriously, like, that <laughs> is so wicked, right? And he could have also punched those guys, which would have also been cool, but he didn't need to. That, like, that, that is what running interference is. That is what taking back the microphone, taking back the message. And, and, you know, journalists are bound by certain realities. Like, if you have shitty tape, you can't run it. Exactly. Right? exactly. Where's your noise machine? <laughs> exactly. Things for <laughs> activists to know. That's a secret. <laughs> Secrets. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a <laughs> closely held secret. <laughs> If you are a white person listening to this and you are uncomfortable by some of these concepts, uh, uncomfortable because you don't know enough or because you have racism all around you and you just don't know how to get through it, you have to contend with that. We are at a crisis point where it is not good enough anymore to just feel uncomfortable, get defensive, right? If your initial reaction is to get defensive, you just need to step back, chill, and ask questions. What is making you feel defensive, and if you need to do research or if you need to talk to other people, uh, listen to other people about how to undo that feeling of insecurity or whatever, do it. Because if that is stopping you from doing the action that needs to happen, then we are never going to fix the problems that we know face us all. So I think the most, I don't know, um, important thing that we said is that you are part of the problem. And I, I hope that what the discussion that we had today helps some of you who are listening I hope it helps all of you who are listening to have a higher level of debate about white supremacy, but even more than that, encourages you to take some action that isn't about uh, these distracting debates that have nothing to do with what the real problem is. Like, uh, at the end of the day, who cares about whether you punched a Nazi? At the end of the day, let's not let um, Ezra Levant controlled the media um, narrative around white supremacy, Islamophobia, and massacres in this country. 
make sure that you are listening to racialized people, black folks, Muslim folks, what they're saying, what they're calling for, how they're asking you to step in and help. Because if you're not listening to us, then you are probably doing the job of white supremacy.